Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Because We Love Finding Meaning After Loss podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Haycock. I am a certified and accredited life coach, grief coach, and certified grief educator. And I wanted to create a podcast and a platform for individuals to share their stories of not only the trauma and the loss, and it's not just the loss of loved ones through death when we think of grief, it's any kind of loss. And I wanted to create this space for individuals to share their stories, but not just the story of the trauma and the loss, but the story of how they found healing, the different modalities and tools that they use to not only live their life, but then turn around and help others do the same. I am inspired by all of my guests and I hope that you will be too. So whether you're the griever and you're trying to figure out how on earth you're going to navigate this life and navigate these losses, or you're somebody who is supporting a loved one who is grieving and you're wondering how on earth do I help them? What do I say? What do I not say? I'm going to be interviewing individuals who are going to give you some tools. I will speak to professionals who will be able to give us some insight as well. So vulnerability and authenticity is my jam. And I hope that you are going to find some or all of these episodes inspiring, useful, and authentic and real. So even though we're talking about some difficult topics, there will be some humor, there will be some laughter. I know that's hard to understand, but there is. So let's get vulnerable, people. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Because We Love Finding Meaning After Loss podcast. And I am trying desperately to hold back the mushy intro to this episode. (laughs) Today is a different episode because my guest was sitting next to me. Uh, It is my, and you know, listen, I am 52 and to call somebody a boyfriend feels quite high school, (laughs) junior high in high school, but I don't know what else to call him my partner, my boyfriend, Darren, who is going to be sharing his story of loss, all the things that he's gone through, a lot of compound loss, compound grief. And the reason why I'm holding back and being so mushy is because he is my favorite. He is the best of the best. And I am so fortunate to have him in my life. And I never thought that I would find somebody like him. And yet here I am. And I know that you're going to just not only get to know him and his story, but I hope that you get a real sense of who he is, like his character. And this is somebody who has been through a lot. And yet he brings joy to people. And I see it on a daily basis, not only in my own life, but when we're out and about, he makes people laugh. He makes people smile. And do you know what? In a world like this and some of the crap that is going on in this world, 
wouldn't it be a better place to have more of that? So I'm really excited to introduce you to my boyfriend, Darren. And I really feel like we need more Darrens in this world. So let's talk to Darren. Well, today is a different sort of day. I actually have my guest sitting next to me. And the reason I do is because we actually live together. So I am going to introduce Darren to you and he's going to share a little bit about his story. So Darren, it's over to you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and about your story? Yes. Okay. So where do I begin? I would have thought I'm going to start with the loss of my mum dates are irrelevant to me but I know it's some people were very good with dates but I'm not so I was 20 at the time and mum was diagnosed with cancer came on very quick and she was in hospital for about three weeks and she came out for a little while at Christmas because that's what she wanted she went back into hospital and then probably died about two weeks later and it came on very quick and we obviously was all shocked and at that age for me the loss was massive um, I can remember just being home with my dad and just literally wondering what had gone off you know I couldn't think couldn't couldn't comprehend what happened um, which to this day it still affects me talking about it to some point but in a positive way help you know by talking to people helps you get through things yeah because the thing is you have older sisters right so you have four older sisters but they were grown and gone out of the house so it was literally just you and your dad and your mom right yeah uh karen who's nine years older than me so she was home for a little while but she was always out and about so for her i think she managed to cope with it a lot better but then she moved away because she got married so yeah it was just me and my dad to sort of get through it and yet again we didn't talk about it together he had to find his own way to deal with it which must have been dreadful for him losing his, his wife um and so i took the selfish route i'm just going out of my mates and trying to deal with it that way um and my dad obviously had to deal with it himself which back in the day i don't think there was any help regarding getting counseling or, or anybody and men being men we tend not to talk so much about stuff which is a shame because I think we should yeah and it was what back in the was it the 80s um yeah again dates for me is always difficult so um let's think so 66 was born 76 86 so 1986 yeah was about the time my mom died yeah yeah so not a lot of support, but like you said, men tend to, I think we're getting, I think they're getting better, but back then you just yeah. don't talk about your problems, quote unquote. No, I think there was a big stigma for men to be able to, to like reach out to people and talk about stuff. And I think also nowadays with media, having the internet and stuff like that, it's, it's become more of an open book. You can speak to people and get your problems out there, which is brilliant really yeah good. so you hung out with your friends and 
partied and did all that, you know, but, but then fast forward, not that long later. Yeah. So then my my dad, he had, he'd already had an heart attack when my mum was alive and then he had a stroke and told me then that he was going to have to move out of the house. And then he moved into a bungalow which was warden aided, which meant there was people there to help him do stuff, which yeah, again was a loss in a way because he was saying to me, look, I need to move. I need to move out, which left me in the family home on my own, which was like a massive shock, um, which you managed to cope with. But yet again, it seemed it was like a loss because it was like this family environment had just literally gone. And it was very hard to deal with yeah. at the time because you were only how old like 25 or something I was about right? 24 25 yeah yeah um in fact I was probably 24 25 when my mom sorry when my dad died of heart attack in hospital um so leading up to that he had his stroke probably three years after my mom died because it obviously affected him I think that really pushed him further down the you know the anxiety and the high blood pressure and everything else so then he he was submitted to hospital and then he died of an heart attack. Um, so I think I was about 25. So yeah, to lose both parents at a young age is, is pretty, pretty intense, to be honest. Yeah, it's pretty, br- it's brutal. And, and again, your sister's grown and have the families of their own, yeah. but you're, you know, just a young man. So yeah. your dad, so you lose your dad and your mom at a young age. Yeah. And then... You just try to what deal with it yeah, <laughs> as just, much as you can. Yeah, exactly. Ignore it. Yeah, well, we sort of put it to the back of your mind as much as you can, and you carry on living your life to, to how you can. And things did change. Things got better. Um, and then I met my then wife, who lived in Surrey, but I'd met her in Nottingham. So I took the plunge. I thought, look, there's nothing for me in Nottingham anymore. I had my sisters, obviously, but they were living their lives. So I took the, took the leap, moved to Surrey with my then wife, um, got married, had two children. Things were going, you know, ticking over as, as they would, did the normal things. But as time went on, I realised that she was very narcissistic. And as the girls got older, she was becoming more like her mother, how her mother was with her husband. And I got to the stage, I was starting to think about things more and more. But then in 2008, I had my own problems with my health, which is a heart attack, which made me realise there's more to life than the material things, which the majority of us tend to want in life. You know, cars, house, two, three holidays a year. And then it really made me focus more on the little things like birds whistling away and trees in the spring coming out and blooming and blossoming and just the, the basics then became massive to me. Yeah, because you you were young. Clearly, this runs in the family, a hereditary yeah. issue with the yeah. heart. Thankfully, yeah. you were fixed. Mm. But when you're having that kind of near-death experience, so speak, like that is yeah. eye-opening, isn't it? Yeah, Just yeah. things into perspective. Yeah. I mean, I was 38 which was pretty young for heart attack. So I had a stent fitted 
which yeah, again, you, the, in a way you lose a part of you because you start to become very worried about your health. You become quite um, someone for paranoid, I suppose, in a way, because like, can I do this? Can I do that without thinking you're going to get another heart attack? Yeah, yeah. So you're always pre-thinking, if I do this, am I going to end up being back in hospital? So it does take a bit of your positivity away from you to start with until you realise that medication and trying to look after yourself, you can do the normal things that you used to be able to do, football, etc. But that was a blow for me. Um, and that's when I did really look at how we were living as a family and the fact that it was all money orientated and not family orientated, like doing things together. It was all more like new things, you know, she got bored very quickly. So we need to buy this, we need the extension. So there's a lot of pressure on me. In fact, to the point where I had a second job while being a police officer to try to fund all the other stuff. So within two weeks of being back from hospital, I was doing gardening again. And then it really, then it sort of struck me that she didn't really care about my health. It was always about the money coming in. So anyway, it got worse and worse. And in the end, I decided to leave. Um, and then I moved, well, I stayed with my sisters for two weeks. Um, came back and unfortunately, she then decided to call police on, a, on an allegation that was untrue. I was arrested. And while sitting in the cell, for me, that was it. So I took my wedding ring off, threw it in the toilet. And I thought that's exactly where that relationship had gone, down the toilet. So for me, it was moving on. But yet again, that was another loss. It was like a loss of a family, loss of a marriage that, you know, my mum and dad were a brilliant role model for me. So to be divorced or to get a divorce for me was a bit of a, I let me mum and dad down in a way because I always thought I'd get married and that'd be it forever. So it was it was more of a, a failure in a way. I felt I was failing. Um, but then looking back now, I think, well, I did the right thing because the amount of people who stay in relationships just for the, the you know just for staying in them. You know, I'd recommend it to anybody if you're not happy, move away from it. So that was that, and then. Um, so a massive, massive loss. I can remember sitting in the car, you know, one minute I've got like a wife and two children and two dogs in the car to then just me. And it felt a very scary, lonely place. Um, and then it got to the point where my ex was very, very narcissistic again. And she was very controlling with my daughters to the point it was like alienation, parental alienation. You know, one minute they were the closest daughters to me, did everything with them, to the point then I would have got any messages from them. In fact, to this day, it's very up and down. Um, and this is six years on from the divorce. So, in a way, she's still controlling them, like Christmas, never hear anything from them. Father's Day, I might get a text. And it goes on and on and on. And it can be very hurtful. And to the point where I've had to have counselling through it. And living on my own in Croydon, when I was on my own, I did actually attempt suicide in June 2019. 
sorry, July 2019, because I just thought, what was the point in this? What is the point in just going to work to get paid to live this lonely life? I don't see my daughters. I've just lost half my pension. I had so much debt because I was everything was in my name that we had in the house. She walked away from all of that. And I can see why a lot of men do try and take their own lives or take their own lives because they feel like there's nothing left. And I think in England, it should be more around this alienation thing where solicitors and the law look at it that this should be classed as illegal to do that. I think now it wasn't at the time, but from my, I've met some solicitors who deal with parental alienation and it is against the law now, but it Mm. wasn't then. And because so parental alienation for listeners who aren't, you know, it, it does, you're explaining it. So it's obvious, but it's any parent who's turning their children against the other parent. So, so you go, you know what, this marriage isn't, I'm, I'm not happy. You're not happy. I'm going to leave, but I'm not leaving my children. I'm just leaving the marriage. I live nearby. I'm going to stay in relationship with the kids and the kids are like teenagers at the time ish. And then the words and things that are being said to the children from the other parent then turns the kids against the parent that has left, so to speak, or moved out. And that's your experience. So then you say, I go from a home, a lovely village, all these friends. and yeah. all. So in did the friendships also? Yeah, it's, I think it's, you'll find that a lot of friendships are very false friendships. I think there's, there's a saying that you, in, in, within a lifetime, you probably only have two to three proper friends. So a lot of my sunny day friends where when everything's working out nice, will come around for the barbecues as families and, and friends. But obviously when the divorce was put there and obviously she portrayed herself as the victim and I'd hit her and, you know, I was being the one that was the controlling one and all this, that, the other. The only one couple from the village remains my friends. Now, whether she sees others um, since she's moved away, but... For me, the, the manipulation of saying your father doesn't love us, which is inclusive, is just, just wrong. Yeah. And um, the fact that I had to move away because I tried for years to stay within the area to be local for the girls, but they didn't want to know. So for me, it was very upsetting because I see a lot of families where they work things out, you know, the, the, the father and the mother live maybe a couple of streets away, children spend three days with the father or three days with the mother. And it's very um, amicable. You know, they, they work it out between them so that it doesn't affect the children. And I know full well that this has actually affected my two children because they've both been to counselling through it because of the way it's been dealt with from her. Because I've never, ever spoken wrongly or badly about my ex to, to my daughters. Because yeah. for me, it's something you keep to yourself or you say it to your friends. You don't say it to your daughters regarding the mother. You yeah, because I mean? that's their mother and you're yep. their father. So, yep. you know, 
you want your children to have a mom and dad. And yeah. even though mommy and daddy don't love each other anymore, whatever, mm. it doesn't mean that the family or the children should be in the middle of that as much as possible. So, you know, and, and the thing is, is with this, like, you know, after meeting you and obviously being with you for nearly two years, like you're the most gentle, thoughtful, kind, giving human being that I've ever met. And so hearing that these false allegations of like, oh my God, out of anybody on the entire planet that I know, this is just absolute lies. And yet the impact, even though it's lies, you know, it's lies, you know, it's not true. The reality is that the girls, you don't have the relationship with them. So you move closer to where you work. And then that's the, this, I I mean, I can't even imagine, I know you've, you've said like, I sit in this space and it's just me in a chair in a room. Like I'm not, I was in a family home with my Mm -hmm. children and how lonely and depressing that state is so you know thank you for sharing that because I know that there's going to be people men and women but the statistics of women doing this to men is far greater don't know what it is but I remember hearing it and it's far greater that women do this to men than men doing it to women. I know it happens. I've spoken to people where the woman, this has happened to the female. However, the majority are women taking their anger out on their ex and using their children as that weapon. And that is absolutely disgusting. If the children, if the, if the father was abusive and all these things and like really toxic and need to protect the children, but that isn't the situation here. I totally agree with that. I mean, obviously if, you know, the men are being that way, then I totally get why the partner or wife, et cetera, would want to be like that. But also it's the effect that it has on the children as they grow older. Um, and, I, and the only thing I'm hoping for is like when the girls move away and got their own lives, then they'll realise that the father, you know, the dad, the father is more is just as important. But I think that the, this time in life, so um, daughters are 21, 23 now, they're living their own lives, they're doing their own thing. But when they go home, or my eldest still lives at home, it's as if they're barred from having any relationship with me. It's very strange. It is strange because I have actually, in the two years, I have actually seen that where there's loads of communication. Because I think there is a lot of rebuilding that has happened and you've done amazing in rebuilding and staying, you know, connected to your to your girls. But though there's loads of communication, mm. Christmas time, nothing. Yeah. And then almost like January 2nd or so then all of the communication starts again like when they're back out away from it is really I was like wow I can I've seen it two years and it's yeah it is very strange it is so so then you go through all these losses losses of your your parents but you also had another significant loss in between yeah so basically when I was going through all of the divorce side of it that the first person I turned to was my 
one of my sisters, Marie, who's not the oldest sister. So I've got four sisters. Val is the oldest. Marie, Shirley and Karen. And Marie was very similar to me. Is She's a bit of a comedian. She'll bat you up all the way. She's the sort of person that will always be there for you. Always happy to give advice. Very calm. And unfortunately, she died of a heart attack while away on holiday with my eldest sister. Um, which yet again was a massive, massive loss for me. But also I could see the hurt my eldest sister had to go through because she was with her at the time when she had the heart attack. And obviously she didn't know what to do. She went to panic. And luckily at the caravan site with the word, there was two paramedics off duty that tried to work on my sister. But unfortunately she had a massive cardiac arrest. So died at the caravan. And for my eldest to go through that, eldest sister, must have been awful. Horrible. And they're really close, aren't they? They're yeah, I mean, they were, I think it's two years between them two. So growing up, they were very, very close. Yeah. So that, that's, that really did upset my sister, my eldest sister, a lot. I mean, obviously, all of us were very close anyway. Yeah. So for, so for Marie to die at 65... Um, is still a young age, I, I think, but yeah, massive shock again in losing a sister. Yeah, I mean, um, so you've got these, you know, losing your parents at a young age. You lost your sister, went through a divorce, all this parental alienation. You then attempt suicide, thankfully, unsuccessfully. Yeah. But also, there's the financial loss. Mm, yeah. So there's the loss. That, so with the divorce, you know, it could have been easily dealt with you know like amicably but no 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 she wants to go for everything so I ended up in debt so the financial loss is massive as well to people also the pension so when I finish when I'm 60 she'll get half of my pension which to me it, it sort of upsets me a little bit because while she wasn't working I was paying for the mortgage she was going to all the children's events with the girls and you know, so I understand legally that they're entitled to your pension, but she just did it despite it wasn't like a necessity. It was more like I can do it, so I'm just going to hurt you as much as I can. So that for me is another loss because it continues to this day. I'm still paying for this thing called an IVA because I had to take an IVA, an independent financial thing, to pay for all the debt that I was left with over thirty-five thousand pound. Yeah, because the the lawyer, the solicitor fees, the court fees, the draining, every letter that's written is there's, so it's just like draining you financially. And she came from a lot of money. So yeah. she could afford that from her family. So, so, you know, the, the amount of loss relationally, financially, physical loss with your parents and your sister and then the relationship loss with the girls and trying to rebuild that what did you do to survive like what so because I always want to give people hope you know like okay so did you do therapy you said something about a therapist did you do therapy what 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 tools and not just therapy but what tools did you use to keep going really yeah well I was fortunate because through work what work I, I'd say was one of the main things that kept me going 
because I had such a good relationship with the people I used to work with. But also through work, I did two weeks away at a place called Flint House, which is not just physical rehabilitation, but it's also for people that's going through depression, anxiety, which was amazing to see other people that I work with that's going through similar problems. And it brought out to me that I'm not the only one that's suffering. There's a lot of people out there that are going through things probably worse than me, but it makes you realise that you're not on your own and it's got to be worth talking to people. So within this two-week environment, you could either have group sessions or you can have one-to-ones. We went on walks through woods to, you know, so that people felt easy to talk to people out in the open instead of in a classroom environment, which worked for me for a little while. Um, and then there was peaks and troughs where I felt better than I felt worse again. So I had CBT through work, I had CB, CBT through my GP, medication, you know, I'm on antidepressants, which help. I call them happy tablets. But for me, you need to be honest with yourself and you need to get help. By sitting in a room on your own, you're just going to end up ruminating about all the bad and you just spiral and spiral into this dark, deep hole, which then sends you into this state where you think there's nothing else, which is the lowest I've ever got to, obviously, because then I was in hospital for three days in an ICU ward, recovering from taking a lot of medication. So I just want to say to people that if ever you feel low, speak to a loved one, speak to a friend, go to a GP, even look online, try and find something that may help you out, whether it be music or a hobby, fishing, painting, music, going out, going to concerts, whatever, if it gets you out, to meet people is got to be a bonus yeah because isolation and loneliness I mean we as humans want connection we need connection so like with COVID you know and we're all locked in a room you know a lot of people went downhill mentally from Mm. that because even if people go oh I don't like people that's not like we need connection so that's that's very good advice and and, and somehow, okay, so you, you go through all of this and you talk about, you know, listening to the birds and going for walks and appreciating everything. And what I can say is, you know, so for those listening who know my mom would know that my mom appreciated and had a gratitude for everything, the littlest of things. And I was like, I don't get it. Right. I mean, I I'm grateful, but I, I don't, you know, a leaf on a tree. I'm like, whatever mom. But my mom was like that. She loved watching the squirrels like this. So it's interesting. So I meet you and I'm like, Oh my God, like you are so much like my mom in that, that you help me stop and notice things, which I don't notice many things. So I've gotten so much better because you're like, look at this, look at that, look at this. And just appreciating every day. So there's so, and every minute and every something that you can see, hear, smell. And one thing that I would wonder or ask you is like, how does somebody do that? You know, like how do they, because it must be a mindset thing too that you've shifted somewhere in your mind. Yeah, but I think 
that comes from your own life experiences, whether it's negative or positive. For me, it was the negatives by having the heart attack that made me realise life's too short, every day matters, enjoy what's around you. doesn't have to be material things, doesn't have to be about spending money. You could be sat in the garden, listening to birds whistling away, feeling the sun on your face, all the basics that actually people take for granted while they're busy going to work or even if it's getting off a train and you can see something that looks amazing, get your phone out, take a photo of it, look at it, appreciate it. Because in time, you look back and think, I'm glad I did that. Yeah, because you, you'll you'll be like, look at that cloud. And I'm like, what? I mean, you know, know look crazy. at how that... But it's, it, is, it is amazing. It is an amazing skill to have in a sense because the reason I say skill is because I think you have to learn it like it's something you have to really stop and learn and be mindful of and you're very very good at that and the other thing you're very good at is being really funny (laughs) so sense of humor is I mean we have a good laugh but sense of humor is also extremely important I get a kick from making other people laugh so whether it's in a shop total strangers I'll try and put a smile on the face, like the coffee shop this morning, you know, saying to him, oh, you know, thanks, A-team. Yeah. And then one of them saying, oh, thanks. And I'll say, oh, not you. So then you get that little rapport going and you have a bit of a laugh. Yeah. And that, to me, can make your day because you've made their day by saying something positive or or I'll bump into someone that's sitting there outside the shop, I'll get them a coffee or just little things that can make you feel better about yourself by helping other people is massive. Yeah. And that's something I never used to do. I used to walk by people because I was too busy. I was too busy at work. Now I'll spend the time to give people my time because then I, get, I feel like I'm getting it back through, through other things. Well, and, it, and it's interesting because obviously we met um, and, you know, some of the first things that I said to like my best friend, like, well, it was really only her that I told at first. And I was like, it just makes me laugh, like laugh till I cry. And that was like the most important thing for me at that moment. It's just a sense of humor. And we're just as stupid as each other when it comes to that. But that is, then we meet, right? And I'm like, right, I'm going to see if what you know we've been talking, because we live so far away from each other. And when we met, and you're making people laugh and you're helping people with their, I think it was beer to their car or whatever, like random strangers come to you. And I was like, oh my God, like this person who I've been talking to is the exact same person face to face. And so I think one of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to bring you on just to see, well, first of all, I asked if you would be happy to share your story, because I know that you're now standing in front of people at work and sharing your story. But the story that you have is powerful because it's not just stories of loss, but it's stories of healing, it's stories of living, it's stories, it's a story of hope. And offering that hope to other people is, I think, is is so, so important. So thank you very much. Thanks for being on my show. (laughs) You're welcome. I mean, I'm just proud of what you're doing, you know, and it's good that you've asked me because I think in time you do come out of this deep, dark place and realise there's other people in that. You've managed to 
climb that ladder and you can see the light, but then it's helping others that is in that state of mind to say, look, things do and can get better, but they're not going to do it on your own. You, you need help and you need to help yourself as well to get there. And it takes time, but stick with it and you will, it will work out. Absolutely. And I think that is the, that is the message, isn't it? Is that you have to work through it. We're not meant to do this life alone. So get the help that you need and, and it will get better. Like you will be able to live, live your life. Yeah. There's one thing my sister Marie used to say to me is like, that there's always light at the end of the tunnel but you need to walk through the tunnel to get to the light. The light's mm. not going to come to you. You have to walk to the light. So you do have to make some effort to get there. It won't happen on its own. That's a very good way to end this. Thanks, Thanks Marie. Much.